When the, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. You remember that, I hope. But now a new cycle of judgment is about to begin as John sees seven angels with seven trumpets. And this evening we're going to consider four angels and four trumpets. God has heard the prayers of the saints and he will crush all those who oppose his kingdom and his Christ. The last couple of sermons have been looking at the seventh seal on the scroll that only the Lamb was worthy to open. The the seal hung upon two important elements that distinguish it from the sixth seal, if you remember. Uh, There was silence and prayer was contained in the seventh seal. And the entire universe was left speechless. All of creation remains silent before the Lamb and the one seated upon the throne. And then the silence breaks as God, in light of the prayers of the saints, acts. And before we begin to look at the next cycle of judgments revealed by John, the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 through 11, it's important that we remind ourselves about the nature of apocalyptic literature, so that we, this, which is the literature that we find ourselves in here in Revelation. This book is not historical narrative. We're not to read the book of Revelation like we would the historical books of the Old Testament or the gospel accounts which in those books, everything moves along in a very chronological pace, in a very um, linear fashion. Apocalyptic literature is not like that. Things are arranged in this book by topic and not by the order in which they occur in history. So we also need to remind ourselves that John's point here is not for us to take the things he writes about like super literally. What the apostle is doing is using like super symbolic language to describe the theological meaning of the ongoing struggle between Christ and his already defeated foe, the devil. John uses this symbolic imagery to paint like word pictures, God bless you, of the final goal of redemptive history, which is the consummation of the kingdom, all those chosen in Christ saved and living in his presence for eternity. So remember I said a few weeks ago that the symbolism we're confronted with from here on out is going to be more difficult to understand. That's true, but we do have a key to help us understand the things that's going on, to help us with our interpretation. And it's not the newspaper. It's not current events. We actually should see the events that are happening today in light of what this book says, not understand the book in light of what is happening today. But the interpretive key that we're to use to help us understand it is, in fact, the Old Testament. There nowhere is this more evident than with the section of Revelation in the series of the trumpets beginning here in Revelation chapter 8, as there are many allusions to Old Testament themes. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. A quick um, update. So technically our text for tonight is 6 through 13, but we're going to read verse 2 as well. Because if you remember, verse 2 was like a little parenthesis introducing the trumpets in light of the middle of the seventh seal because the prayers of that are that are revealed in the seventh seal also impact the reality of what's happening through these um, trumpet judgments so let's read we'll read um, God's word beginning at verse 2 then we'll skip to 6 and read through 13 and then we'll pray so verse 2 in God's word then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Verse 6, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
the second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the others' trumpets that the three angels are about to blow." That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give understanding, that you would cause us to do more than just hear what is said tonight, but that you would grant belief and increased faith, and that you would use this means of grace to bring glory unto your name, and to humble us, and to exalt Christ among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I was saying, uh, we need to remind ourselves of some of the things concerning apocalyptic literature as some of the things that we've already seen. So remember that there are three cycles of judgment in this apocalypse. (laughs) The first cycle of judgments are the seals. We read about those seals already in in Revelation 6 through 8-5. And in the seals, we saw a series of judgments from the perspective of God's throne room. The, the, the view, the angle of these judgments was primarily from the perspective of the throne room of God and the worthiness of the Lamb was exemplified there as well too. The Lamb who redeemed, who redeemed and suffered for his people. And then through the series of judgments, he ends up vindicating their cause, even though they suffer at the hands of the, the beast, the, of unbelievers, and the state, all the time in this present evil age. Which, if you remember... The whole, this whole age, we were saying, is, is the great tribulation. When, when the Lamb opened the first four seals, we read of four horsemen going out and removing peace from the earth, as well as bringing famine and sickness and economic hardship and, and even death uh, to one-fourth of the earth's population. But the fifth seal contained a vision of the saints in heaven before the throne of God, and a the saints, they were crying out to God, asking how long. They were saying, oh Lord, how long, as they were awaiting Christ's second coming and the resurrection that comes at the end of the age. And then one of, when one of Christ's saints die during this period, this great tribulation, the saint comes to life and reigns with Christ. We saw that really in the fifth seal. Uh, the, then the Lamb opens the sixth seal, And the sixth seal was dealing with the great day of judgment. The entire universe shakes with the second coming of Christ. There was the great earthquake, the eschatological earthquake, that ushered in the end of this present evil age. The same sort of language that the Old Testament often uses to talk about judgment as well. And then using apocalyptic imagery, John describes how the skies will roll up like a scroll and how the sun will cease to give light, how the moon will turn to blood and how the stars will fall from the sky. All of this was just to symbolically picture judgment and God's judgment comes upon all the earth's 
unbelieving inhabitants. Remember, great, small, rich, poor, kings and generals, they're all terrified by the wrath of the one who sits on the, on the throne and the lamb. They would rather have rocks fall on them. They'd rather have whole mountains collapse on top of them than deal with the wrath of the lamb than to see Jesus Christ coming in judgment. And then the seventh seal is opened and judgment comes upon the earth when the Lord returns. Well, that's the, the, end of this, the end of the six seals that. And then there's that dramatic interlude that talked about the 144,000. There was that pause that was supposed to reassure us how the church is going to be preserved through all those judgment activities. And so even though they're happening, the church will be preserved. The church isn't going to perish or disappear. And eventually, you know, we have true victory as well. Then in Revelation 7, um, the, we see the church militant upon the earth. They're sealed by God with the name of Christ and they're protected. And even though the world may attack them, they will make it through. They've been redeemed by the blood of the, by the, blood of the Lamb. They are in heaven, even clothed in white. They're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And they are awaiting and worshiping God with the elders and those four creatures that were around the throne, waiting until the last person chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world is saved. And then, and then comes that final judgment. And so after John has reassured his readers of this book that they're going to be spared from God's wrath to come, we see that seventh seal finally opened in the beginning verses of chapter 8, which we went over the last two messages. And the way that these seven seals unfold in human history is important because the seven trumpet judgments that we're going to be reading about in Revelation 8 through Revelation 11, they follow the same pattern. Just like the seal judgments, the trumpet, trumpet judgments also cover the entire period in between Jesus' first and second coming, his first advent and his second advent. But the perspective here is slightly changed. The perspective with the seals is from the throne room. The perspective with the trumpets describes the present course of history from the angle of the unbelieving inhabitants of the earth, who we might call the city of God, a city of man. Right? If we think of the church in the world, or the, the kingdom of God in the world, there's the redemptive kingdom, those people who are saved, those people who are trusting Christ, and then there's what we sometimes call the common kingdom, those people who aren't saved. And, you know, probably, obviously, certainly, there's people that are part of the common kingdom that will one day be saved, and they will be part of that redemptive kingdom then. But so, for our purposes in speaking, I'll probably often just call the unbelieving part of the world the city of man, and that would just, in your mind, should hopefully have you contrast then with those who are saved, those who are trusting in Christ, the city of God. And those are really categories from uh, a pastor who lived in the 5th century named Augustine, who, who wrote about uh, the church around the time of the fall of Rome, even. So, the, the saints now, who are alive and who are in focus during these trumpet judgments, are kind of more in the background, but whereas the unbelieving people are more in the foreground, and God is going to be, through these trumpet judgments, doing the same types of things that he did, that on a, but on a much larger scale with Egypt and Pharaoh, and how he preserved his people through those as well, too. So because of the direct connection to a number of Old Testament themes in these judgments, we are also reminded of how the church 
right now, even today, the church from the time of, of Jesus' first coming to present day is very much in its own exodus right now. We are in an exodus from being freed from our bondage to captivity and sin, and we're en route to the true Canaan or the true promised land, the heavenly city, to that glorious freedom that awaits us in the new Jerusalem. And even while believers, and some of them are there now, right? People who have died, but who knew the Lord, who have died in the Lord, they're there in heaven now, while we are still, part of us in the church, are still on this exodus. Now we remain in the midst of this great tribulation. So it's all happening at the same time. Revelation is helping us to see that the church as God's people in the time of the new covenant is the antitype to God's people in the old covenant. So it's really important for us to know our Old, our old Testament because the things that we see happening to the nation of Israel are a, they're the, they're a type of what happens to the church. They're, they're supposed to help us see how it is that we are to live in light of God's truth even today. The Old Testament is an important book for us to know. Uh, in the Old Covenant, they went through a wilderness to get to the promised land. We today are doing the same, but it's a heavenly promised land that we are going to until Christ comes, and then when he brings the new heavens that consummates his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and we live on the earth with Jesus forever. So, as we work our way through the trumpet judgments, we must keep in mind that these judgments cover the same period of time as the seals. It's not like the seals happen in history, and then now here comes the judgments, the trumpet judgments. This pretend this podium is the whole span of time in between Jesus' first and second coming. The seals happen all in this period. The trumpets happen all in this period. And so will the bowls when we get to that. They're all happening in this, in this same period. And just like with the seals... There are six trumpet judgments, and then comes an interlude. And with the seventh seal judgment, when the seven trumpet judgments have run their course, God's wrath is complete, and we arrive at the end of the second coming of Christ Jesus, which also means, too, that the prayers of the saints that we read about in the, the fifth seal and the seventh seal are active at the same time as well, too. Because they're covering the same period of time. These things are happening now. They've been happening since Christ's first coming. And Jesus has been working through them. So even though the trumpet judgments um, come after the seals in the book of Revelation, and it would be right to say, actually, as you'll see, that they're more intense than the seals, they're nevertheless describing the same period of time in between or the same period of time as the seals, in between Christ's first and second coming. Sometimes we call it the church age, the last days, the thousand years in, in a time, a times and a half, or just simply the millennium. So I, I've noticed this, or I've mentioned this before as well. It's what we call recapitulation. I mentioned like the replay, like on a football game, hopefully you remember that. We see the same event from different perspective, and, it, and it's moving what John is doing, what the Holy Spirit is intending to us to do through John's pen, is to understand what life is like for us today. The same thing his original readers. This, they could read this book and understand what life was like for them at that day. Same thing for us, because it's describing this whole time period in between Jesus' first and second coming. 
So with all this in mind, let's think of our text in Revelation 8, 2 and 6 through 13. If you know the scriptures, you, you know the sounding of a trumpet has an important place throughout the biblical narrative. When Yahweh descended upon Mount Sinai to give Moses the law, trumpets announced the great event. In Numbers 10, we read of two silver trumpets fashioned to summon the people of Israel to assemble before the Lord outside of the tent of meeting. The Jubilee year, in which slaves were let free, which land was given a rest, in which debts were forgiven, that was announced with a trumpet, as well as the news of the king's uh, um, coronation. In Joel 2, we read that a trumpet will announce the day of the Lord. On three occasions in the New Testament, we read that the second coming of Jesus will be heralded with the sound of a trumpet. But when we read in Revelation 8-2 that John saw seven angels who stand before God and he gave to them seven trumpets, we should also think of an important Old Testament event involving seven trumpets, the fall of Jericho. So turn with me if you have your Bible open to Joshua 6. Joshua is right before Judges, right after Deuteronomy. This is probably a familiar story. If you guys watched you know, VeggieTales, there is the VeggieTale version of this that I'm sure you're aware of. This is Joshua 6, 2 through 5, okay? And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Then you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout out with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So the, the fortified city of Jericho with this massive wall around it stood in Israel's path on the way to the promised land, which is interesting. Canaan, the, the promised land, is it's pretty big. Why not enter it at an easier place? Why not get settled and then come back and then force Jericho out? Why enter the promised land really at the most difficult place, the most fortified city going in? Why enter it there. Be thinking about that. So to remove this obstacle, God commands them for six days, the army of Israel with the Ark of the Covenant in the front were to march around this city in a circle. And they were actually supposed to be silent the whole time. They weren't supposed to make any noise. It was supposed to be a, just a silent walk around Jericho for six days straight. And then on the seventh day, the Israelites circled the city seven times. And then the seven priests with their seven trumpets blew their trumpets and everybody yelled and the walls collapsed. They fell down. The whole thing did except for that one part where Rahab was living. Her house was in the wall with that cord, that scarlet cord that was you know, pointing to the mercy of Christ. And Jericho was defeated. And it's not an accident then that the seven trumpet judgments 
in sense, mirrored Joshua's actions here at Jericho. For when the seventh trumpet sounds, the city of man built in opposition to the kingdom of God and later identified as Babylon the Great um, in Revelation 17 and 18 will fall as a direct result of the judgment of God. Even as Jericho blocked the entrance into the promised land, so too the city of man stands in the way of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And God has these seven trumpets that will blow that will eventually end it all and usher in the eternal age. Like Jericho, Babylon the Great will also fall at the hand of God's judgment. Later on in Revelation eleven nineteen, we read that when God's temple in heaven was opened, the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And we're once again reminded of Joshua's actions at the Jericho when the priest sounded the trumpets and the Ark was present. But this is not the last of the direct con connection between the trumpet judgments and the Old Testament, as we'll see shortly here. So before we examine the first four of the seven trumpet judgments, it'll soon become apparent that six of the seven trumpet judgments have a direct parallel to the plagues in Egypt. That's why that question was there in your group discussion time. And as God raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart so that his glory might be displayed to the people of Israel, as well as to the pagan Egyptians, so too are the trumpet judgments designed to show that the destruction that will come across the earth during the cycle of judgments is the outworking of God's sovereign hand in conjunction with the prayers that he ordained for his people. And so as he did with Israel when they were in captivity in Egypt, Israel prayed to God. They caught, cried out to God for deliverance. That was an, a desire that God put on them to do that. Same thing now. Our prayers, God puts on our hearts that we pray. And in, through those prayers, God is delivering us as well, just like that type-anti-type -type relationship. And so as God did with Israel while they were in captivity in Egypt, God protects and, perse and perseveres his people even while he brings judgment upon his enemies. You remember, right, in the ten plagues, did Israel ever feel the plagues in Goshen? They didn't, right? It was with the tenth plague they had to put the, the blood on their doorpost. We're not going to talk about that specifically right now. But God focused all of his judgments upon Egypt, and he spared his people through them. Further, the... Um, Clear parallels between the trumpet judgments and the plagues that God sent upon Egypt prevent us from interpreting these images in light of like modern technology. Like when we when we read those verses, hopefully none of us were thinking like, oh, this is a, a nuclear fallout or something like that. That's not what it was talking about. It's referencing us back to the Old Testament. We're supposed to understand these these symbols symbolism of judgments through what was already revealed in the Old Testament. And just like with the seal judgments, God's wrath is restrained some till the end. John's, he's drawing all of these apocalyptic images are drawn directly from the Old Testament. And in doing so, he's telling us in broad and in general terms of those countless calamities, war, famine, economic hardship, plague, natural disaster, and so on, which come upon this world and are sometimes even the result of human sin, sometimes not directly. But he's telling us through this apocalyptic language, and it's very general and broad, not, not specific, but that these things are happening all according to his plan. Wars, natural disasters, 
whatever it is that they are, they're happening because of God's will. The first trumpet judgment mirrors the seventh plague upon Egypt. So in verse 7 in Revelation 8, it says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and they were followed with hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And then if you look back in Exodus, we won't do this for all of them, just for this one. Exodus 9, that's where we see the plagues being discussed. Exodus 9, 23 to 24. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, a very heavy hail, such as never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now, this is withheld or reserved judgment. Remember back to the seals? There was, you have to remember this, there was damage to one quarter of the earth. Uh, one fourth of the earth was attacked in the seal judgments. But now with the trumpet judgments, they increase, don't they? Now it's a third of the earth. There is more that are being impacted now. These are, again, there's an intensifying to the judgments that we read as we go along here through Revelation. And so not only does John have in mind here the seventh plague upon Egypt, but the fact that the fire is mixed with blood also recalls the first seal judgment and the rider on the red horse who brings war upon the earth. So therefore, the first trumpet judgment includes war as well and the damage which results from the continual, continual enmity upon the earth. This time, one-third of the earth is supposed to be targeted. So natural disasters, wars. The second trumpet comes up next, and it recalls the first plague upon Egypt when the Nile turned to blood. According to John, Revelation 8, verse 8, says the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain. Some, pay attention to that. Something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So, here again, we need to keep in mind the literary genre of the book. John's own qualification here by saying something like means we're not supposed to take him literally. The, there's not a, just a mountain that's going to fall into the sea, like out of nowhere. Uh, the entire Roman world at John's day knew of the destruction of Pompeii when Mount Vesu Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. And that's probably on John's mind when he describes this thing that's like a mountain going into the sea. The volcanic eruption therefore probably underlies what John describes as the fate of those living creatures in the sea, which would also include people, perhaps seafaring cities, since there, it mentions that a third of the ships were also destroyed. Something like a mountain. Whatever he's seen probably brought to mind the eruption of Pompeii, in, in Pompeii. And just like the Nile turning to blood ruined Egypt's agriculture and commerce, so will God bring judgment upon the seas, restraining the domination of the city of man over the people of God. The third judgment 
does not actually have a direct link to the plagues in Egypt, but it does echo the first plague of the Nile, as well as an incident from Exodus. Um, in Exodus 15, 25, while at Marah, Moses threw wood into the bitter water, and it became sweet, which was a picture of the cross. But here, the opposite is the case. Wormwood, which is a plant that is strong, the strong bitter taste, and is, is thrown into the earth's water, and the water all becomes bitter. So verse 10 in Romans, or Revelation 8, says the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, the key here is to not take John literally, but to look to the Old Testament passages which help explain what John sees. In Jeremiah 9.15, uh, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. So the prophet in Jeremiah announces the poisoning of the water which brought death to certain Israelites, bless you, which also brought famine by killing the vines and the fig trees of Israel. And it was a direct judgment upon Israel because of their covenantal unfaithfulness. And the poisoning of the water that is judgment upon the idolatrous nations of the earth who are under God's curse in Adam is, is in light of that same picture that we have with Jeremiah. Uh, to drink the water made bitter by wormwood would over time poison a person and bring death after a lot of suffering. And so it points to famine. It points to starvation. It points to disease on the earth. The image of the third trumpet is God bringing judgment upon the city of man, upon lost people, by causing that which is pristine and beautiful to become bitter and poisonous. Rivers and springs often in this age get polluted. People suffer and die. Crops fail and once fertile lands sometimes become barren landscapes. Storehouses turn into, you know, empty warehouses and, and famine uh, persists. Even something as beautiful as the union of a man and woman in marriage, when it's viewed outside of that, you know, there's opportunity for disease and, and sickness. So those sorts of things are included in the third trumpet. On the fourth trumpet, we have a direct parallel to the ninth plague sent upon God's, upon Egypt. Uh, that is the plague of darkness. So in verse 12 in Revelation 8, we read, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be darkened, and, or excuse me, a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. So this judgment uh, clearly affects the skies and the amount of light which shines upon the earth. And while this trumpet judgment sounds a lot like the sixth seal, and the, the cosmic signs associated with it, there's significant differences. In the sixth seal, which was dealing with final judgment, it was over the whole earth. It was all of God's creation that was in view. But here with this fourth trumpet, it's limited to one-third of the light. And so this isn't talking about final judgment here, but it's talking about a series of trials that will affect the third of the earth, which precede the final judgment, almost like a dress rehearsal for it. And explains actually the extent, I think, of sin's reach as well. Think when Adam sinned, he plunged all of creation 
into rebellion and, and in need of redemption, it extended even all the way out into the cosmos, into the, the farthest reaches of the universe. When mankind was made to be God's vice regents in the garden, he gave mankind authority over everything. And so Adam's fall entailed sin's effects to go out throughout the farthest reaches of the universe. You might have even just heard this past week, NASA shot down an asteroid, which is really interesting and kind of cool, I guess. But they're saying like there wasn't an asteroid that was on target for the Earth. But I mean, it was like a practice run. Yeah, potentially, you know, there could be something like that that happens. And certainly the Earth has been hit by asteroids before in the past. But that's because sin's reach has gone out throughout the whole universe. And so with these first four trumpets having been sounded, all of what John calls uh, the the inhabitants of the earth, what he'll later call Babylon the Great, which means those people who are rejecting God and his gospel, they've been warned because their idolatry and their unbelief that the final judgment is coming in one day, It will extend to all the earth, not just a third of it. The calamities, the war, famine, economic hardship, plagues, natural disasters are all in a way acting like a trumpet. They're announcing something. Announcing that all is not well and that that everyone needs help. That everyone needs mercy and grace from God. And through these trumpet judgments... God reminds his people that he's heard their prayers and that the prayers of the saints will be answered and that he will punish all idolaters even when he spares his own people or while he spares his own people. But after the fourth trumpet sounds, John sees something else. So before the fifth trumpet, verse 13, he says, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So there are three more trumpet blasts yet to come, and the judgments that are described by them are they're weightier than the first four. They're more, they're more serious, and they describe in great detail the torments that await those who will not worship the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Indeed, the eagle warns us three times, Woe to those who dwell on the earth. You know why scripture often repeats something in sets of threes, I hope, right? Uh, to emphasize it, you think of like the, the angels um, in, or the seraphim in Isaiah's vision, where they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. And then here in Revelation 8, the last three trumpets, so we learn, are in fact three woes. And so we're made to think the suffering which the last three angels and trumpets will bring will be worse than the four. And remember, these are not future events. These are the kinds of things that are happening at different times in different places throughout the whole world in between Jesus' first and second coming. And that would mean that the first four trumpets would have the same overall purpose as the last three. In chapter 11, we get a clue towards um, the end toward that end with the description of the two witnesses. Uh, But there is something within the sixth trumpet that sheds some clear light as well, too. So look down at Revelation 9.20. This is in the sixth seal, or excuse me, the sixth trumpet. And it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues 
did not repent of the works of their hands, nor gave up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. So they did not repent. Even though these judgments become more clear, they did not repent. And that means that the first four trumpets are also to be thought of along that same vein. The calamities that take place, war, famine, economic hardship, plagues, and natural disasters are all in a way acting like a trumpet today. A trumpet calling out to believers that they may pray that God would be merciful and even use these events to soften the hearts of the elect so they may see their need. And they are like trumpets to the lost, that there is a God and that they should fear him and they should seek reconciliation with him. The earthquakes, tornadoes, fires, wars, famines, tsunamis, everything else, they may or may not be brought about by the specific sins of specific people, a specific judgment. That's impossible to tell in some cases, like Hurricane Ian going on right now. We can't point to a specific sin of those people who are being flooded right now because the same sins that those people are guilty of, people over, all over the whole world are guilty of as well. But you know what that storm is also doing for people right now? It's, it's announcing that this world isn't the way that it should be or the way that it could be. It's announcing that there is something and someone greater than them. Will they run to God and repent? Or will they harden their hearts like many in Israel often did in their wilderness wanderings? God does use these kind of events, uh, these calamities, to bring the elect to him. They're an opportunity for repentance. As a matter of fact, I even remember hearing Pastor Nick say that it was the the attack on the Twin Towers, that it was that event that happened that he felt like the call into ministry and that he wanted to be a youth pastor at the time. So God uses these calamities to work in the lives of people. Remember the interaction that Jesus had in Luke 13 with some people over these kinds of events? And obviously, an interaction that Jesus had with people would mean that it was an event that happened in between Jesus' first and second coming, right? So Luke 13, this is probably a familiar story. We did preach through Luke a few years back on Sunday mornings. But Luke 13, 1 through 5. We read, There were some present at that very time who told him, meaning Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's part of the purpose of these kinds of events that are described here in the first four trumpets. God is behind them, and they are a means of reminding people that if they don't repent, eternal death is what will be awaiting them. You spoke about repentance in your group discussion time, and that is that repentance is a saving grace that you do in response to God showing you your sin and pouring out his love on you through the Spirit. It goes regeneration, faith, repentance, if we're thinking of the chronological order. But we should be clear here as well 
that repentance is only possible because of God's kindness to us in declaring that he would save us. Because in doing so, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the the one who would satisfy God's wrath that our sins have earned, but also to be our present and permanent righteousness. So let's say you were able somehow to recall every sin that you ever did. Um, for this scenario, I guess pretend that you're like not considered guilty by because of Adam's sin, okay? Because of the fact that we're the fact that we're born dead in our trespasses and sins would mean that we would never, apart from work of grace, even seek to be right with God in the first place. Because we're born as children by nature, children of wrath. We're born dead in our sins. So for this scenario, pretend that you're that Adam's sin as your federal head isn't affecting you. And so let's say you're able to think of every sin you've ever done and you repent. You ask God for forgiveness and because his son had went to the cross, you could be forgiven because the son of God went to the cross. Those who repent from their sins and trust in Christ have faith in Christ and have their sins forgiven. There could only be repentance because there has been one who paid a penalty of sin, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the object of faith for believers even. But he did more than pay the penalty of sin so that forgiveness could flow with repentance. He lived a righteous and a holy life as well, never once sinning. And when we we repent from our sins, we can also trust that Christ's righteousness has been accredited to us in a legal sense. He has imputed to our accounts so that before God, it's as if we have been perfectly, permanently, and perpetually righteous ourselves. That when God looks upon us, it's as if we have lived the life that only Jesus could have. And we know then we're accepted because we're accepted in the beloved, in Jesus himself, and God we know cannot deny himself. And so repentance could only happen because of Jesus's passive obedience and going to the cross and dying for us, and then also his active obedience, his holy life that he lived, so that could be accredited to us through the faith that he supplies to us. Because even if we repented and all of our sins were forgiven based upon just that asking forgiveness, whenever we sinned again, then we would be condemned unto hell again. So and God demands perfect, permanent, perpetual obedience. So Christ has done that for us. And so friends, remember when events like Events happen, like the one that's happening in Florida right now. I've seen some pictures already where, like, just houses are flooded all the way up to the roof line. Billions of dollars of damage, I'm, I'm sure. Who knows how many lives lost. When these types of things happen, we have opportunity to remember the gospel ourselves and the repentance that God grants us. And we have a good opportunity to remind people of who God is and who he We have good opportunity to remind people of the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is coming again, and their need to be right with him through Christ alone. These trumpet judgments are acting like a trumpet to the world to say that God is real and that there needs to be a reconciliation. So we have opportunity even through them to tell of God's goodness. Let's, Let's pray. Father in heaven, We do ask for mercy for those in Florida right now who are suffering under this hurricane. And we pray that you would strengthen your church to deal with the effects of it, knowing that there are many godly and faithful congregations that are in the path of this hurricane even. 
We especially pray for their safety, God, and we pray also that the reality and the terror of this storm would help people to see their sin and would cause them to seek reconciliation with you, Lord, that you would grant repentance, that the riches of your kindness would lead to repentance and that people would turn to you in faith, even through a tragedy such as this. We know that nothing is wasted from your end, Lord, and that you are working all things according to the counsel of your will. So may you be exalted and glorified in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, any um, questions, any discussion? That makes sense to you? I hope. Okay.